Hey everybody, welcome to The Stoop. So I grew up in a small American town, and much like any other town around the country, we were surrounded by friends and family. We had our schools and churches, and local mom and pop shops. There was the local characters and criminals and busybodies, and we all kind of knew each other's business. And rather than gathering on the front porch, we gathered on our stoops. See, this little small town was hidden in a far-off corner of a giant city. And although it seems like an ancient age, my memories are quite clear. So sit back and let me tell you the tales of my days and my crazy times on those stoops of Atlantis. So welcome to episode 30, can you believe it? Less than a year, we hit episode 30. And over those weeks... And over these episodes, we've got a little nice little loyal following. And uh, I'd like to know where you're from. I know some of you personally, but I know a bunch of you I don't know. So uh, do me a favor. Shoot me a note if you want. Let me know where you're from. Let me know how you discovered this podcast. Uh, I don't know if you know this. I'm also a, a book author. I have a trilogy of uh, middle grade fantasies books out, The Adventures of Rupert Starbright. And if you go to rupertstarbright.com, uh, there's a contact button. You could just uh, shoot me a note. Tell me about uh, the podcast, how you discovered it. It'd be I really would love to know. And uh, if you don't mind, also, you know, if you love, if you enjoy this, I like to grow this audience more. So just maybe tweet it or share it on Facebook or just do it old school. Just talk to people, tell them about it. Uh, I really appreciate that, and because I want to continue to make these, they're a lot of fun. But uh, I'd like to see the audience continue to grow. Thank you for listening, and uh, here is episode 30. Five little hearts all in a row. The first one said, I love you so. The, the 14th of February will always be my mother's birthday before anything else. She'll be 89 this V-Day. And yeah, her middle name is Valentina. I'd have really early memories of making birthday-slash-Valentine's Day cards that featured a paper heart that popped out on the power of a little paper spring. I learned this trick from Miss Anne Montilli, my second-grade teacher and perhaps my very first crush. The day also meant candy. My dad was always a romantic. That's where I get it from. And he'd come home with this giant chocolate-filled heart, and I'd dive in to find the caramels and the jellies. And with me and four sisters, I wonder how many my mother actually ever ate. Stupid Cupid, you're a real mean guy. I'd like to clip your way so you can fly. It began in kindergarten for me. There was a girl whose name I uncharacteristically forgot. I was a big baby in kindergarten. I just wanted to be home. I hated school. She, on the other hand, was more outgoing and often bad get into trouble. I guess the bad girl always has a certain attractiveness. She would talk to me and when one day, around Valentine's Day, she took a seat beside me and said, you want to be my boyfriend? I shrugged and said, okay. And she said, okay, I'll be your girlfriend. I had no idea what that meant. It actually ended up meaning nothing. I mean, that was it. The extent of our relationship in its entirety. It was an offer, an agreement, and well, nothing. I've never been one of those, I think girls are icky boys. It's just not in my DNA. What was in my DNA was a strong strain of geekdom, which made liking girls and getting girls two very different things. But from a young age, I always wanted a girlfriend. 
In the fourth grade, my eye caught sight of a cute fifth grader. Her name I do remember, Rosemary Fry. And my buddy Wolford's attention was on another fifth grader, a beauty named Yamini. Neither of us could really admit to each other we had crushes, but we would constantly tease one another. It was that age. I remember one day in Sloan's supermarket, me and Wolford teased each other with jars of rosemary and cans of yams. You know, yams, yamini, yeah, it was silly. And aside about Wilford, he was a good guy, but he went through this really bad self-important period in fifth grade. He'd walk around after he'd aced a test saying, I'm the smartest kid in class, and other equally annoying ego trips. So one day, me and my other buddy Nelson, we had enough. So during our lunch break in the school gym, we grabbed him, dragged him over to the stage, and shoved him in one of the storage areas beneath the stage where the chairs were stored. We closed him in and made him swear he would stop bragging. Well, when you're trapped in a dark tunnel rumored to be the home of seven-foot-long sewer rats that tunneled in from East River, you know, you'll promise anything, and we let him out. Was that bullying by today's standards? Nah, the little bastard deserved it. He was later voted class president, much to the chagrin of me and Nelson. Power can make a kid really, really obnoxious. Anyway, back to fourth grade. We were approaching Valentine's Day, and in those days, it was encouraged, yeah, even in Catholic school, to open your heart to someone you may have true but innocent feelings for by writing little Valentine's notes on colorful paper hearts, supplied by the teacher, who ironically, the name was Ms. Valenti, and then you would place them in a box decorated with aluminum foil and red paper hearts that sat at the back of the classroom. Well, for me and Wilford, our targets of Amour were not in room 402, the fourth grade, but in room 408, the fifth grade class. So Wilford and I agreed we would sneak our notes into the 5th grader's box. We privately scribbled our feelings onto the heart-shaped parchment, folded them up, and then during recess, I snuck off away from 402 into 408 and popped my paper confession of love into the box. Back in 402 later that day, I whispered to Wilford that my mission was accomplished. His eyes bugged as if I told him I had visited Jupiter, and he said, you actually did it? Uh, yeah, didn't you? No, Wilford chickened out. I suddenly felt sick. Should I have done it? I felt betrayed. I was left alone with my heart shoved in a box for some girl I never even spoken a word to. Wilford, you SOB. But like my handshook agreement girlfriend of kindergarten, nothing really came of my daring secret missive. Well, I remember during lunch in the playground, Rosemary chased me, somehow wrestling me to the floor where she smiled and playfully mussed my hair. I guess that was her loving response. That was as far as it went. My follow-through was non-existent, so that was the end of that romance. Then Valentine's Days came and went, and it went from springy-hearted construction paper cards to bottles of Charlie for my mom's birthday and store-bought Valentine's slash birthday cards. But there were no girls to have secret crushes on, well, until 7th and 8th grade. You've heard me discuss my grade school crush before, Marlene. Trouble was, she always had a boyfriend, Vinny from 119. He was actually a smart and nice guy, which made it all the worse, and he would haunt my love life again, as Cupid seemed to always shoot us both with the same arrows. And then, there was my childhood buddy, Jennifer. As you've heard in numerous episodes, her and her brother Christopher were my and my sister Laura's constant companions since we were little kids. But, as years passed, I had the feeling Jennifer had a crush on me. Actually, I know she did. And well, as puberty came, that feeling became mutual. But it was weird, being longtime friends, spending years teasing and insulting each other more like brother and sister, and the way friends do, 
it, it was weird. On top of that, I was too shy at that age to really make that move. You had to have a move, my buddy Scott would say. What move? Where did a boy learn these moves? Was there a book? Was there a PBS educational show? No. You learned them from big brothers. I had four sisters. So I had no moves. Zulch. And even though I pondered and even made some lame and embarrassing attempts to get something going between us, like that time without actually asking her out, I, I slipped my 8th grade graduation ring on her finger. She looked at me with confusion. I mean, I had made no effort to explain. A few minutes later, she handed it back. I couldn't blame her. A girl wants to be asked. That sent psychic messages. So nothing ever came into fruition. There'd be no Valentine's Day cards or anything else between us, just good memories as friends with any other possibilities buried away. I'm pretty sure Jennifer's a fan of this podcast. We do stay in touch. I think she could vouch for this story. Then, one day it happened like in the movies. A girl I had never seen before rode down my block on her bike, and the world slipped into slow motion. Who was that? A new girl in a neighborhood where no one knew ever showed up. Next day, walking along Pleasant Avenue, I passed that old wooden house that must have been built in the 1800s that was recently torn down and replaced by this really ugly excuse for a building. Anyway, I heard giggling and looked up, and there she was again peering down from the short roof with a friend. She was smiling at me, a smile that zapped me off my feet. Her name was Christina, and her friend was Christian, and she had another friend, Damaris. Anyway, I, I remember leaving my Aunt Dee Dee's building a few days later, and there she was, Christina with Damaris, leaning against a nearby car. Damaris smiled and waved my way, my eyes barely noticing since they were on the other girl. And she said, come here and give me a kiss. She actually said that. I mean, she was pretty cute, but my brain was being fueled by Christina, who just stood by, not saying anything. I didn't want to kiss Damaris. Being super shy, I had no witty response. So I just smiled at Christina and walked home. Over the next few weeks, Scott and I tried to make our way into Christina and Christian's circle, which we did in our geeky way. Well, my geeky way. Being clueless and being sans moves, I behaved more like an annoying brother than a potential boyfriend. I even squirted a water gun her way and she chased me around Pleasant Avenue. Then later that day when I tried talking to her in Patsy's Pizzeria, she actually got revenge by slapping her slice across my neck and walked off. Yeah, Romeo, you're making good moves. But we all sort of became friends. One autumn night, the four of us were sitting on Christian's stoop. Scott, who had three older brothers, was pulling out his hand-me-down moves with Christian and making some headway, kissing her on the cheek. In a day or so, they would be making out. Me? I sat as close to Christina as she would let me while she strung beads on a thread. Scott and Christian's giggling, punctuating the fact that I was getting nowhere fast. I tried talking and she just mumbled. I talked and she mumbled. I was impressed. I was actually talking. 
I mean, did she have to mumble? Finally, Scott and Christian went for a walk, and it was obvious Christina wanted to go home. I walked her, letting my arm slip around her shoulder. For me, that was a huge move. The guys on the avenue saw us, and I got a few fist pumps, some chuckles. She looked horrified. That's because Vinny was there. The same Vinny that went out with Marlene, my grade school crush. Nonetheless, I walked home that night with the police song playing in my head. I was walking on the moon. The next day, she saw me with my new army jacket and she literally screamed out and came running over. She loved it. Me, super geek who I tried to charm her by showing her magic tricks a few weeks earlier. Yeah, I actually did that. Actually thought I was cool. It was a chilly night and I let her wear it and she gave me her red sweatshirt to wear. Was, was this weeding somewhere? Was this like trading rings or pins? We sat on the suit with Scott and Christian and she was actually talking, no mumbling. But this was East Harlem. And even if it was relatively peaceful in the early 80s, the unexpected could always happen. And it did. A gang of about 30 people armed with bats came marching up 118th Street. Yeah, this ain't the romantic suburbs. I kid you not, was there a rumble brewing? Were they going to start singing and dancing like West Side Story? Nah, this looked ugly. We weren't going to hang around to watch, and we all ran for shelter. So any potential romance that stupid Cupid may have been planning ended up nothing but a tease. A joke. A cruel joke. Is that your girlfriend's sweatshirt? Joe's mom asked me the next day. I blushed. My dad, standing nearby, said yes. I wanted to say yes too, but I had no idea. And as if on cue, Christina, in my army jacket, waved me over from Pleasant Avenue. My heart pounded as I raced to her. Did we have contact? Was this actually going to happen? And she took off my jacket and handed it back, asking for the sweatshirt, which I was still wearing. Probably slept in it. Days later... Vinny the creep will be sucking face with her against my father's car a few buildings from where I watched, my heart crumbling like month-old cake. Hey, Cupid, shoot your arrow straight up in the sky. Follow it carefully as it comes back down and stabs you in your eyes. Consider it a victory for the lonely, broken-hearted kids like me to leave you in a pool of blood face down as a Autumn turned to winter and the holidays passed and we were closing in on another Valentine's Day. Scott had broken up with Christian and I suffered further indignity of having Christina begging me to ask Christian out. Nothing against Christian, I mean she was a nice cute girl, but having your unrequited love plead with you to ask her friend out is the cruelest of jokes by a sick Cupid. And no, I didn't ask her. I had my dignity to protect. I'm feeling Cupid this Valentine's Day Cut off both his wings, hang him by his legs Because loneliness is misery But the one who's laughing now is me Hey Cupid, you're so stupid I learned a few weeks later that Christina and the Pleasant Avenue stud muffin had broken up. I was in no way over her and I decided in the spirit of Valentine's Day I would write her a letter. A real love letter. I worked on it in the privacy of my room. And I took special care to make sure that my doctor-like scribbles of amour was legible. Then, rather than mail it, I went over to Pleasant Avenue and stuck it in our mailbox. And waited. And waited. And waited. 
no reply. So I had to make a move. I had to suck it up and just ask her out. I slipped on my headphones and popped a cassette into my Sony Walkman. Stand and deliver. I marched to Pleasant Avenue, adamant, egging on my courage. I opened the front gate, climbed a stoop like a soldier on Iwo Jima, and rang her bell. No reply. I rang it again. Silence. One more time. I felt like a billion eyes were on me like wet grapes. I guess she wasn't home. Or, horror of horrors, she was ignoring me. I walked home. This time not floating on the lunar surface. Courage was starting to seem a waste of time. Stupid Cupid. Why was he messing with me? I lost hope. About a year passed. I wasn't sure if she moved away because I didn't see her as often. Then I began to see her waiting at the bus stop regularly on 116th Street. We would share nothing more than a wave. I decided on one last move with her. I knew she was a big Billy Joel fan. He was coming to Madison Square Garden in April. I would ask her. I was going to ask her to the show. And I did. And she said okay. Okay, that meant yes, right? I was kind of stunned numb. And as I headed to school, I had a thought. I, I didn't have any tickets. Now in the meantime, something else had happened. My cousin Lisa had invited me to a dance at Barnard. I mean, what the hell? So that Thursday night, March 1st, 1984, I went, and when I arrived, she surprised me by saying she wanted me to meet someone. God, that statement's so heavy. It just sounded so official, meet someone. Who was I going to meet, my future wife or something? I hated that she didn't warn me. I mean, I, I would have dressed better or something. I had this stupid sweater on, I just didn't feel right. So I went in and she introduced me to this really cute blonde girl. She looked so young. I mean, she was a senior in high school. I was a freshman in college. Her name was Susie. She had pin straight blonde hair and very pretty blue eyes. And I found out she was a dancer and she probably wasn't going to be going to Barnard, but she had other colleges in mind. And she lived on 86th Street in a building I knew well as a kid. I'd run through the driveway when I was on 86th Street with my parents. And she had been friends with my cousin Lisa for years. And then it dawned on me that I probably had met her a year earlier in one of Lisa's parties. In fact, thinking about it, I, I know I did. It was kind of weird. So we talked and danced and laughed, and we had a good time eating little pretzel nuggets and soda. And when it was time to say goodnight, uh, I asked for her number. She looked to be surprised, like, like I had asked her. And rather than writing it down like a normal guy would, I totally geeked out and punched the numbers into my oh-so-cool Casio calculator watch. And then when I got home, like a friggin' moron, the numbers were gone. But Lisa was always around, so I called her and got the number back. Now, the Billy Joel concert was getting close. And I played a hunch with a guy in the computer club in my college. Something about him rang ticket connections. Amazingly, I was right. And I bought two tickets for this show at Madison Square Garden in April. So, back to Christina's doorbell to confirm the concert date. I mean, I mean, she had said yes. There was no answer. I tried again. None. 
Tried again the next day. Again, no reply. Was this girl ever home? Or was she just playing possum? I think I had had enough of being toyed with and ignored. So I asked my cousin Joe to take the ticket. He was my main go-to guy going to concerts. A week or so later, I went on my first date with Susie. We went to go see Splash. But we were early and we went to a diner on 86th Street and 1st, a block from the theater. And this is where I learned Susie needed a prom date. Which was why Weez had set me up in the first place. And Susie got up the nerve to ask me. Now I was on the other side. And my reply was one I would never live down. I said I would think about it. I was now the jerk. I was on the other side of heartbreak. But we did enjoy the movie. And as we went on more and more dates, I could feel Susie was beginning to fill that gap that Christina had dug in my heart with a cruel shovel of indifference. But most ironic of all, the night of Billy Joel's amazing show at MSG, Joey and I were heading home, zipping up First Avenue on the M15 bus. When we hit 42nd, who gets on? Susie. Her and her friend Beth, who were interning at the Harold Corman Theater on West 42nd. I still wonder what the scene would have been if I had gone to the concert with Christina and then run into my prom date on the bus. So Susie and I became a real thing. We went to the prom at Windows on the World, and it was my turn for makeout sessions. She became my real summer love in 1984. But there was a catch. Just as our relationship was flowering, she would be heading off to college, way upstate in Saratoga in September. I felt that pit in my stomach growing as that fateful last evening came. And we took a carriage ride in Central Park, and she gave me a linked heart's ring to wear on a chain. Here is where these stories usually end. Long-distance relationships are tough, especially for the geek left behind. And those four years weren't always easy, and we struggled through it. But in the end, Cupid's arrow had hit the right targets. Our love grew, and then finally, we got engaged. And I'll never forget the night in East Holm fashion, as we showed my parents the engagement ring, and the chauffeur in the limousine waited outside. We heard it. Gunshots. And that poor limousine driver pounding on my door, pleading with us, can we please get out of here? The neighborhood was always there to remind me where I came from. Since that date we met in 1984, I have never not had a Valentine's Day card or gift to buy. And me and Susie dated for eight years, making it through that four-year long-distance battle. Then we got married in 92. And 27 years later, it is still us. With our little kitties, our roof garden, our trips to Vermont and around the globe. Together. She still teases me about that I'll think about it one. But hey, I was a kid. So Cupid hadn't been stupid after all. He waited for this kid from East Harlem to meet this very special downtown girl. And he shot me a winner. It all seemed impossible for this geek, sitting so many lonely nights dreaming of love on those stoops of Atlantis.
This has been the Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Please make sure to go to rupertstarbright.com and drop me a line. Tell me what you think of the podcast and spread the word. Until next time.